So this evening we cover two chapters in Job, chapter 25 and 26. So reading the entirety of those. God's holy and inspired word from the Old Testament, Job 25 and Job 26. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Job 25. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes heaven his or makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, the son of man, who is a worm? Then Job answered and said, How have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge? With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters in their inhabitants. Shoal is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his clouds. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his wind the heavens were made fair, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So are you an expert at something? Have you devoted yourself to master some topic or activity? That is, after decades of focused studied and disciplined practice, you know pretty much everything there is to know about your speciality. Well, by and large, we do like our experts. That professional genius gives us the confidence that we are on solid footing or that the job will be done at the highest standard. Thus, YouTube is filled with those who claim to be pros. Politicians love to quote some unnamed authority to prove their position. And yet, if you were given a hundred questions in a room with a hotshot expert, it doesn't take too long to get an I don't know. Indeed, honest scholars will admit that despite all that they do know, there's even more that they do not Of course, to keep up the appearance of being an expert or wizard, the person often has to do a good deal of acting or maybe even a touch of lying. Indeed, in our infinitely complex world, human expertise is rather shallow. Of course, in our pride, we don't like to acknowledge this. We prefer instead to posture ourselves as know-it-alls. We will conceal our ignorance and do so with dogmatic explanation points, with concrete or with confident abstractions, 
and then by tearing down our challengers. And this posturing as a master, as you'll remember, has been very much a dynamic between Job and his friends. Though, with a few well-placed questions, Job unmasked his friend's professional veneer, and he also humbles us before the inscrutable ways of God. So Job just wrapped up a two-chapter speech, and in the second half of it, chapter 24, he brought to the fore the topic of the delay of judgment. He pointed out how, since God puts off the judgment of the wicked, that it only increases rebellion and painful suffering. He admitted that the wicked will not escape at the end of the day. The wicked are by nature of the darkness, and their destiny lies in the darkness. But until that judgment comes, which is slower than molasses going uphill in January, the wicked have a heyday. Thus, Job also carved out the category of innocent suffering, the abuse of the victims. As the wicked have their fun, many feel the throbbing pain of oppression. There is such a thing as victimhood and innocency, which undermines the friend's stance on the retribution principle. Job's point was that strict retribution doesn't properly account for the delay of judgment for the increase of wickedness and the innocency of victims. If judgment is um, poured out uh, as soon as possible for on everyone's sins, well, then how do you explain the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the lowly? Hence, once again, Job landed a solid point. His reasoning pour, poked more holes in the friend's already leaky bucket. Bildad, though, won't take this lying down. So, to Job's remark, Bildad responds, and he does so with some lofty, but rather abstract truths about God. He says the Lord rules with dreadful dominion, he imposes peace in the heavens, and his heavenly battalions cannot be numbered. The light of God's knowledge and governance shines upon all. That is, Bildad sings the sovereignty song. The power of God's reign is universal, and none can escape him, and so all should be in fear of God. Now, this is true enough, but it is a bit hard to discover its relevance. How does this actually address what Job just said? Maybe God's imposed peace in heaven is supposed to counter Job's statement that the wicked run wild on the earth, but this doesn't seem to be very on target. Instead, it feels more like a dogmatic doctrine asserted merely to imply that Job doesn't believe it. Next, though, Bildad publishes that humans just cannot be righteous before God. No creature born of a woman can be pure in the eyes of the Lord. The moon is a dim light bulb compared to the Lord's uh, splendor. The brilliant stars are filthy things in the Lord's uh, sight. Well, if the heavenly bodies can't be pure to God, how much less humans who are worms? As he points out, people are no better than maggots who infest the manure pile and live off roadkill. Maggots and grubs belong to the realm of death, and they march in the kingdom of Sheol. 
Humans are grubby and nasty larvae to belong to the cursed domain of the underworld. Therefore, Job just cannot be right. There is no way Job can be vindicated before the Lord, for he's a pathetic maggot living in the sewage and surviving on decaying flesh. Instead of praying and protesting for a meeting of God, Job then should just be quiet as the worm he is. Now these lines sound quite pious. To denounce the impurity of humans and to laud the purity of God appears to be defending total depravity. What a robust doctrine. Us humans are pathetic and nothing. And yet there's a problem. The problem with this line of argument is that it it is not that it doesn't have elements of truth. Rather, its weakness lies in that it categorizes humans merely by the nature of our essence instead of by covenant. That is, it's overly reductionistic and abstract. God is supremely holy, and we are scum. Well, okay, sure, but this is not how God regularly relates to us. To posit that we are mere maggots dishonors the image of God in which we were created. It's even a touch Gnostic, as if human nature itself is rotten and worthless, rather than our fallen state in of mankind. Additionally, Bildad misses the reality of God's grace to make and mold people into his pure friends. Indeed, if Job is nothing but a maggot, this contradicts the Lord's own approbation of Job from heaven that he was the most upright human of all. Now, sure, in our sin, we deserve the grave, and our depravity affects every part of us. And yet God created humans holy and pure, And he's redeeming us to be upright covenant partners. Therefore, Bildad employs an abstract but pious-sounding doctrine against Job. He kind of uses it like a baseball bat for heart surgery, the completely wrong tool. And even if it does have some truth to it, it's not really relevant to the topic on the table. But there is something also else askew about Bildad's remark here. The language of verses 4, 5, and 6 is taken nearly word for word from Eliphaz in two places, in chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. That is, Bildad is parroting Eliphaz here. He offers no thoughts of his own, but he plagiarizes Eliphaz. When you start repeating points already made, especially if you steal the repetition from someone else, this exposes the weakness of your position. Yeah, what he said. This means that Bildad has no solid response to Job's arguments. He has nothing new to contribute. Instead, he just copies Eliphaz. This then explains while Bildad, uh, why Bildad's speech here in chapter 25 is so short and why it is the last we hear from the friends. Yeah, the normal length for one of the friends' speeches has been at least 20 verses or more, but Bildad speaks a mere five verses, three of which are stolen. And the friends say no more after Bildad. With Bildad's abstract and irrelevant words, 
Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad have nothing more to say. They run out of words, responses, and comebacks, which means Job has silenced them. In a debate, to be silenced is to be defeated. Job will go on to talk for another six more chapters, but we hear nothing else from the friends. This might be good news to us. This reveals, then, that Job has the better argument. His truth is stronger, while the friends have the weaker position plagued by errors. Yet, there's one more feature here in Bildad's words that betray his losing position. Note that he underlines that men are maggots and worms, and the stress on maggots picks up on something Job said about himself. Back in chapter 7, Job lamented how his flesh was covered with maggots. Worms were living within the sores and open boils of Job's body. And thus, as Job whines that he has worms, Bildad throws at him, you're nothing but a worm. Thus, Bildad has resorted to name-calling, to ad hominem. He doesn't address the argument of Job, but he attacks Job himself, his character, to put salt in his wound. In a debate, to insult the other person instead of countering their arguments is a fallacious argument. It's uncharitable, unbrotherly, and disrespectful. Thus, Bildad's last words are a slur and a slander. Job, you're just a maggot. Bildad and the other two friends came out to counsel and comfort, but they've ended up with nothing but gutter talk. Bildad spouts abstract ideas until depravity and divine sovereignty to make himself look good and pious, and then he pitches mud on Job. You're just a nasty grub in the manure pile. With friends like Bildad, who needs enemies? Yet after this short bluster, Bildad is quiet, and Job gets the microphone back. Now, Bildad's brevity exposes the shallowness of his position, but it also may hint that Job might have cut him off. That is, Job has heard all this before, and he's lost his patience with such banal repetition, so he just butts in. No more speaking for you. Either way, Job aims his response directly at Bildad. That is, the you in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 26 is singular, pointed at Bildad specifically. And he chides Bildad for not helping, for not saving and giving no counsel. Note he characterizes Bildad's advice as useless. It didn't help. It didn't rescue Job in the slightest. His words have been nothing but a puff of air, so small that it didn't even move a hair. And Bildad's counsel has all been in vain because he has no strength or might. Bildad lacks all wisdom and sound knowledge. Thus Job grades Bildad as incompetent to counsel. He has no competence to advise, and his advice belly flopped off the high dive. Now, as you know, good counsel can be priceless, but incompetent counsel is a waste of time and money. 
Bad advice is like waterboarding. It's torture disguised as medicine. It would have been better if Bildad had just remained silent. Silence would at least have saved everyone a lot of wasted time and stress. Next, though, Bildad, or Job comments on the source of Bildad's advice. Note he says, where did you get his, your words? Whose breath came out of you, Bildad? This is Job catching Bildad red-handed in his plagiarism. Bildad is parroting Eliphaz. He didn't even have the wisdom to come up with his own ideas or opinions. Yet this mention of breath coming out of Bildad refers to the process of inspiration. It points to a spirit inspiring Bildad. But why bring up inspiration? Well, Job does because of where Bildad plagiarized Eliphaz. These words about men being hopelessly impure and maggots come from chapter 4, verse 17, which is where Eliphaz recounted for us his night vision. Remember that Eliphaz told a story about how in a dream a powerful spirit visited him and spoke to him. And this dreadful spirit told Eliphaz that men are impure no better than worms. And Eliphaz claimed divine inspiration for these ideas. Well, now Bildad quotes what the spirit supposedly told Eliphaz. Thus, Job questions, what spirit did you parrot? That is, Job is saying, Bildad, you should test your spirits better. For as you'll remember back in chapter 4, after weighing what the night spirit said to Eliphaz, it was found to be more like Satan than God. The Lord declared Job as the most upright man, but the spirit whispered that Job cannot be right before God. As God says elsewhere in scripture, we are to test every spirit with the truth, but the friends have just accepted Eliphaz's dream as if it was from God. Thus, Job points out that the spirit that Bildad challenges is not from God, but from the evil one. Bildad postures himself as spirit-inspired, but in reality, he's demon-possessed. Bildad needs to be more careful on who he quotes, for he ended up citing an evil spirit. And this is a good caution for us. For even with good intentions, we can carelessly spout ideas that belong more to the evil one. Satan is, after all, superb at twisting scripture for his dark purposes. So with haste and pride, we can think that we're quoting God, but actuality, we rehearse evil deceptions. If Peter could be used by the evil one, then so can we, just as Bildad has been. Yet with this chiding, Job now launches into his own doxology of God. The friends have regularly played the transcendent card to magnify God and to shame and silence Job. They mistakenly assume that to laud God means you also have to put down humans, as if the greatness of God and the goodness of mankind are mutually exclusive. Well, Job can play the transcendent card as well. He can sing of the transcendent majesty of God to bring out other tunes and harmonies. 
Thus, Job composes his own hymn of God's splendor. He starts out, the, dread, the dead tremble and shake before God. Sheol lies naked, abandoned, has no clothes before the Lord. God stretched out the northern mountain over the void. He hangs the earth over nothingness. Water he ties up in the clouds, and they do not burst. Nevertheless, the point of these wonders that he lists is that they're paradoxical and mysterious. That is, the dead were supposed to be those who were at peace in a watery tomb. Sheol, by definition, was the land of darkness where everything was hidden and ignorance reigns. The north, in verse 7, refers to the mighty mountain of God named Zaphon, and the earth is supposed to be founded and firm. And yet for God, he floats his mighty mountain over an empty space. The Lord hangs the earth over a formless void. How can mountains rest upon air? How can heavy water be held in airy clouds? How can something so dense be held in what is so ephemeral and wispy? Well, in his sovereignty, God does the unthinkable. He shatters our definitions, and he performs what we think should not be logically possible. Then Job continues to wax on about the unhindered power of God. The Lord drew a circle over the waters where light and darkness meet. That amazing curved line of the horizon where light kisses the darkness as the sunset, God does this. At a blast of the Lord's nostrils, The mountains shake, and their knees run with water. God calmed the chaotic sea. He shattered the ancient sea monster monster Rahab, and he pierced the elusive serpent. He makes the heavens fair, and he demolishes the forces of evil. This paints God with the imagery of the divine warrior. Particularly in the surrounding cultures, creation was often presented as the battle of the gods that the good gods vanquished the malevolent forces and monsters of chaos and ruin. Well, in reality, there is no God beside the Lord, but this lauds God as victorious over all evil and chaos. It praises the Lord for his power to calm and disturb, to slay and to subdue, to beautify and domesticate. That is, the Lord performs all sorts of outstanding and opposite actions. With the same blast of air, God can shake the heavens and make them lovely. And with these, and all these mind-boggling wonders of God, as Job says in the last verse, are but outskirts of his way. What we know of God is a mere whisper. While the full thunder of God's power, no one can comprehend or ponder. The paradoxical mysteries of God are just a smidgen of his total might. And what we know about God is an inch deep compared to his unlimited glory. The friends use the transcendent card to simplify God. He's high and holy, and we are worms. Bildad's appeal to God's transcendence limited both God and humans. One is great, and the other is a maggot. There's nothing more to the story. 
Job, however, employs transcendence to open up the endless and inscrutable ways of God. By retribution, the friends boxed in God and man. There's only one way about it. Their logic of retribution excluded anything that didn't fit within their reasoning. Job, though, counters that God does no end to paradoxical wonders. The Lord is a master of performing what is illogical to humans. Mountains floating in midair? Never. We don't even know the beginning of all that God has done and is doing. By his power, God often does what we judge to be contradictory and nonsensical. Bildad hurled at Job the charge that you're insane. It's impossible for a maggot man to be manded to be righteous before God. But Job counters, but this is exactly the type of wonder God can perform. Job's point is, I can be a worm, and I can be righteous at the same time. What is contradictory to humans can be the wonderful wisdom of God. And with this well-made point, Job points us to another paradoxical truth. Indeed, this very imagery here of verbal rebukes, stilling the sea, and piercing the ancient dragon is taken up by none other than Jesus during his earthly ministry. The word for rebuke here refers to a verbal blast of air shot out from God's mouth or nostrils. By this rebuke, God's breath split the Red Sea for Israel to pass through. Well, this is the very same word that the gospel used for Jesus when he rebuked the demons. Yet Jesus cast out the demons by a violent burst of air from his mouth as the divine warrior. Then, by his death and resurrection... Jesus conquered the ancient serpent. He skewered Satan by having his own side pierced with a spear. Finally, when the disciples were scared to death amid that stormy sea, Jesus stood up and calmed the waters with the word. And what was the disciples' reaction to the quiet sea? Well, they were more afraid and they cried out, What sort of man is this? that the sin and winds obey him. Their minds were shattered with a contradiction come true. No human has power over the winds and waters, but Jesus does. In violation to all the disciples, what they considered orthodox, a man in their own presence exercised the warrior powers of God over evil and chaos. How can this be? Job's friends would would have been picking up stones to uh, to, to punish blasphemy at this point. Yet, the man Jesus did what only God can do. Sure, Jesus was no mere man. He was God incarnate. But Jesus was still fully human. And this paradoxical, paradoxical wonder of Jesus points us to another. The key impossibility for Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar here is that maggot men cannot be righteous. 
It is an, an insane heresy to think that a worm human can stand pure before God. But this is precisely the miracle of the gospel. That Jesus, who had no sin, became sin so that us sinners might become the righteousness of God. Now, we may not be worms in the exact way that Bildad posits, but we do deserve the punishment of everlasting death, where the worm does not die. We lost the status of original righteousness in Adam, and we became imprisoned to the fate of the grave. And yet, by going to the cross as our representative and substitute, Jesus justified us by his righteousness reckoned to us. Indeed, at the heart of the gospel lies the most sublime paradox, that in Christ we are simultaneously saint and sinner. By God's grace, we stand justified in Christ. What was impossible for us by the law or by retribution is made a reality in the person and work of Jesus. What Jesus earned by his upright works is ours as a free gift through faith. This is an amazing miracle and wonder that in Christ we mortal sinners can stand before the smiling face of the Father. And having been clothed or clothed us in his righteousness, Christ secures us for us heavenly peace. In his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has gone to prepare for us the beatitude of heaven. And heaven, as the Apostle Paul says, will far surpass anything that we can think or imagine. As Job says here, we know but a small piece of all of God's works and wonders. Now, what the Father has revealed to us in Christ is true and reliable. It's certain and firm. The gospel of Christ does not fail, and it will not change. But the horizon of heaven far exceeds anything that we can imagine. In glory, God will make possible things for us that we never thought were. Thus, let us rest confidently in the gospel, and may we humbly acknowledge the mysterious and inscrutable ways of God. Then, by his grace, may the Lord grant us the wisdom and humility so that we are competent to counsel others. May we test every spirit with the truth, and may we become better readers of God's inspired word so that we can encourage one another with the truth and in love. And all for the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our almighty King, our unsearchable God, who reigns forever. To him be the glory. Amen. Let's pray.